Welcome back to the Rebel Core Content Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. I'm Anand Swaminathan, and this week I'm here with a new voice to the podcast, Dr. Miguel Reyes. Miguel is a chief resident at Hackensack Emergency Medicine Residency in Hackensack, New Jersey, and he's soon to be a med ed fellow at St. Joe's in Patterson. Miguel is actually already part of the Rebel team. He's a big contributor doing all the show notes for CoreCast, but now we got him on the audio side. Miguel, welcome to RebelCast. Swami, uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been great being a part of the Rebel family and helping out, but now like stepping in front of the mic and participating is feels like a pretty big deal and kind of nerve-wracking. I'm, it's a pretty big deal for me too. I'm, I'm really excited to get you more involved on the audio side of this. It's kind of the next step. Uh, it's been great having you doing the show notes and now time to call you up to the big league. So we're going to dive into a case that you saw, and it's going to kind of vault us into a discussion of an entity that I think we probably see fairly frequently in the emergency department, but maybe we're not always recognizing it. So why don't you start us off with your case? The case uh, is pretty straightforward, at least now in retrospect. It was one of the days after conference, which for residents tends to be a really long day. So I go into my shift already pretty tired. And one of the first patients I see on the board is this young lady coming in with palpitations. So I pick it up. I go into the room. I see the patient. I go through my history, my physical, do the whole thing, walk out of the room and still just kind of confused as to what's going on. She had complaints of shortness of breath, palpitations, anxiety, chest pain, headache, swelling, just kind of complaints all over the place. And her vital signs were stable. So I really didn't know what to make of it. I go to my attending, I present to him. We send off a bunch of labs. And then in addition to all the labs we sent off, I also sent in TSH and a T3, T4. And lo and behold, TSH came back low and the T3 came back high. It's kind of nice to get that unifying diagnosis if this is what it is, if this is hyperthyroidism, especially when you see this patient with the symptoms that are all over the place. And often when the symptoms are all over the place, endocrine is something that we should be thinking about. And then to get a diagnostic test that actually comes back within the time limit of the emergency department visit, and you have a presumptive diagnosis. That's a a nice workup. Here's the question, though, Miguel. What about this patient made you think we should get the TSH? So what struck me is that we had multiple systems being involved. She was complaining of chest pain, shortness of breath, kind of anxiety, tingling. Like it was a lot of things that were interconnecting and nothing really like was cohesive to me. So when I have patients that come in with a lot of different systems involved, I always think to myself, maybe this is endocrine. So that's part of the reason why I decided to throw off the TSH and T3 and T4. I think that's a great thought process, especially on a young woman who's complaining of things like palpitations and shortness of breath. It's something we can easily miss. Uh, Let's dive into hyperthyroidism. Let's start with the general pieces of this. Sure. So what you'd mentioned earlier, this is a pretty common pathology, although the presentation can be pretty vague. Additionally, you can get a spectrum of presentation along all age ranges. Now, when you say it's all along the spectrum of disease, what do you mean exactly by that? We can have patients that come in not very sick, kind of like the patient we're discussing right now. They come in vital signs stable with some mouth complaints, all the way to patients that are like altered mental, very tachycardic, very, very sick appearing. And I think that we often focus on those really, really sick patients and what to do, the thyroid storm patient, what medications to use, how to identify them. But we don't always think about the less sick where it's still important to make the diagnosis because we can prevent them from getting to that very sixth stage. Miguel, let's start basic. Let's talk about hyperthyroidism. Let's talk a little bit of pathophysiology on how this actually develops. Sure. So hypothyroidism is basically just an excessive amount of thyroid hormone in the body. This hormone affects pretty much every organ system in the body. And that's why the presentation can be so varied. You have 
thyroid hormones like T3 and T4. There's way more T4 in the body, but T3 is the active form and the more potent one. T3 and T4 are protein bound and they circulate throughout the body. Only small portions of the T3 and T4 are unbound and those are like the active metabolites that have all the effects. You then have primary and secondary hyperthyroidism. Primary, which is the most common, is an excessive amount of thyroid hormone from either thyroid gland or external factors like someone taking medicines, what have you. Secondary hyperthyroidism, which are the minority of cases, are basically an excess production of thyroid-releasing hormones or TSH. In that primary group, one of the ones that sometimes we don't always pick up are the patients who are taking external medication. So they're taking levothyroxine. And often this is in order to speed up their metabolism. This will help you lose weight. I've seen bodybuilders who use this as well. And we have to be keyed into that. I've seen a couple of cases where the patient came in in thyroid storm from overdosing on their levothyroxine. It wasn't on my radar the first time I saw it. It was the second and third time I saw it. So we do need to think about that as a possibility. Let's get back to your patient and the clinical presentation. What clinical features will we see when patients come into the emergency department with hyperthyroidism? The great thing about these endocrine abnormalities, specifically hyperthyroidism, is that the presentation is varied. So you never know kind of what you're going to get. You can get weakness and fatigue, but also the patient can present with hyperactivity. They can get heat intolerant. They can be sweaty. They can have fevers. They can have a voracious appetite, but they won't gain a lot of weight. They can be anxious, they can have palpitations, diarrhea, some hair loss, gynecomastia. They can also present with new onset AFib or just tachycardic. So, you know, just a very nice narrow spectrum of presentation. Uh, additionally, you also have to keep in mind that the presentation varies for age. So young patients will present in one way, whereas geriatric patients will present completely different. They'll be apathetic as opposed to hyperactive. They'll have tremors. They'll present with weight loss, shortness of breath. So you also have to keep that in mind when you have the different age ranges. And many of the geriatric patients will have similar symptoms to the young patients. But I think when you did your research, you found up to a third of them will have that apathetic reaction. And that's going to be hard to diagnose. It might not necessarily be on our list of things to look for in the apathetic patient or the patient who comes in who's depressed, who's older. But we do, again, have to be thinking about thyroid as a possibility. And they're just kind of having the opposite reaction than we would initially assume. When you see that patient where they've got these varied symptoms, multiple systems kind of all over the place, are there physical exam features that can push you towards this diagnosis and push you towards testing? Oh, for sure. There's like classic things that we are taught in medical school to look out for for patients with hypothyroidism. One of them is being lid-like. And what is lid-like? That's basically when the upper eyelid is higher than normal when the globe is looking downward. So you can ask just your patient, hey, can you look down for me? And if the, the lid doesn't follow the eye, you're like, okay, well, then they have lid-like. Maybe they have hypothyroidism. Additionally, uh, you can look for exophthalmos. Although the severity of this doesn't parallel the severity of the thyroid dysfunction, so the patient may or may not have it. Additionally, you can look for goiter, although goiter is not always present, um, especially if someone's taking like uh, exogenous medications, they won't have goiter. And then, of course, a lot of the other things that you talked about in the symptoms that the patients come in with, you can see those new onset tachydysrhythmias like atrial fibrillation, hair loss, those things may also be there too that can tip you. But I think many of the patients who come in with hyperthyroidism where they're not really sick don't have a lot of external signs that push you towards the diagnosis. And it really is on that history that says, there's a possibility this could be thyroid. Maybe I have to do that evaluation. Miguel, once you decide that you're going to do the evaluation, that you are worried about thyroid disease, what labs are you getting? You talked about the TSH and the T3, T4, but what other labs should we be ordering in addition to those? 
So in the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned I shot off a bunch of labs. Uh, I should have been a little bit more specific. So whenever you're working up these sorts of patients, you're considering like an endocrine disorder, you should also send off like a CBC, a chemistry, get a chest x-ray, order an EKG. And obviously, if they're a young female, you want to get a pregnancy test. What are you looking for on that ECG? So there can be a number of abnormalities with the patient that comes in with hyperthyroidism on the EKG. They could be like a new onset AFib, or they can just present in sinus tachycardia. Up to like 50% of patients that come in with hyperthyroidism are going to have a resting heart rate of like above 100. AFib can be seen in upwards of 20% of these patients. And also keep in mind that atrial tissue is particularly sensitive to the thyroid hormone, and that's why you have the increased incidence of AFib. You mentioned a bunch of other tests, the CBC, the chemistry. What abnormalities are we likely to see on those tests? When I was doing my research online, I didn't see like a lot of specifics as to like the abnormalities that you would see on the other labs because of the hyperthyroidism, but it was a recommended order set that you should get. And a lot of times with those labs, you're looking for other problems that could be causing this. A lot of nonspecific symptoms. This could also be an electrolyte abnormality. Sometimes you'll find anemia, especially with patients who are hyper or hypothyroid. You can find an anemia associated with those. So there are some other things to look for, but they're nonspecific. They're not going to give you the diagnosis. And that's why the TSH is so important. Back when I trained and, and, you know, once you get out about 10 years from residency, you're supposed to start as many conversations as you possibly can with back when I trained. But back when I trained, we couldn't get rapid turnaround on TSH. You'd send it and it would come back like five days later. It really wasn't an emergency department test to get because of that. It was really something ordered out of the clinics. But now we order a TSH and we get turnaround in 45 minutes, maybe an hour if you're unlucky. Obviously, there are places where the turnaround isn't so quick, but in many places, you can get a very quick turnaround on that test. So let's get into the money test here, which is the TSH. So the TSH level that you expect to get with patients that come in with primary hyperthyroidism is going to be low. And why is this? This is because of the negative feedback effect. Basically, the serum T3 and T4 will have like a negative feedback effect. So that way it's going back to the thyroid and causing the levels to be low. And in most places, they'll get the TSH. If the TSH is abnormal, they'll do a reflex to get your T3 and T4. So they're not really testing the T3, T4 until they have the abnormal TSH. So the TSH is low you're expecting your T3, T4 to be high. And if the TSH is high, you might be expecting your T3 and T4 to be low, but that's the typical progress or the process that you'll get. TSH first, and then the lab will report the T3 and T4 a little later on. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what happened with this patient. We sent off the TSH, and then we saw that the T3 and T4 were significantly elevated, and boom, we had our diagnosis, and I felt great about this whole patient presentation. In the patients who have thyroid storm, we know that a major cause or a co-occurring condition is infection, whether that be pneumonia, UTI, I've even seen meningitis setting it off. We routinely do a thorough infectious workup in these patients. And Miguel, I'll be honest, even if I don't find an infectious cause in a patient with thyroid storm, I'm very likely to give them broad spectrum antibiotics, understanding how common infection is in these patients. What about that less sick hyperthyroid patient? Does the patient like the one that you see need a comprehensive infectious workup? So I would say it depends on the patient's age and their comorbidities. So for instance, our patient that came in, she's a young, healthy female or otherwise healthy female. So I didn't think we had to do an extensive workup besides kind of like our basic labs and chest x-ray. 
So with those sorts of patients, I'd be very comfortable. Like you found your cause, they're stable. We don't have to do any further investigations. However, if they have some other comorbidities, they're a little bit older. I definitely think we should do like a more in-depth review of what's going on and a more in-depth kind of workup to see kind of what may have caused a hyperthyroidism or what else could be going on. I think that's pretty reasonable because in the thyroid storm patients, altered mental status is one of the big pieces. And you might not be able to get that great history of whether they've been having dysuria or whether they've been having cough or fevers at home leading up to this inciting event. Whereas the patient with a little bit more benign hyperthyroidism, if such a thing can exist, is more likely to be able to give you that story. If they don't have infectious symptoms, they don't have urinary symptoms, there's no reason to go chasing those things down. Let's finally talk about treatment and disposition. Obviously, hyperthyroidism is something that should be taken care of by an internist, by a family medicine doc, by a pediatrician, depending on the age group, in the office. That's what the patient really needs. But what should we be doing in the emergency department to start that process? Like you mentioned earlier, this is basically like an outpatient sort of management, right? So it kind of depends on your comfort level. You can either reach out to the patient's primary care doctor, see if they feel comfortable handling this. You can send them to the office and have them be seen by them. Although if you have an endocrinologist on call and you have access to that, that would be great. You can reach out to them and see what their recommendations are as like what you should do with said patient. And most of these patients can be handled by an internist or a family medicine doc, but we know that most of these patients will be referred to an endocrinologist. So again, if you have someone on call, no reason not to drop them a line and say, hey, I've got this patient, newly diagnosed, hyperthyroidism. I'm going to send them for follow-up. This is their primary doc. I'd love to give them your number to set up an appointment with too. And then the next step is you can actually ask them, are there medications you'd like me to start the patient on today? We know that beta blockers are one of the big treatment modalities that we should be giving these patients, whether that's from the emergency department in quick primary care follow-up or under consultation with the endocrinologist. What beta blocker should we be reaching for? And is there a starting dose that we should reach for as well? So when I was looking up the information it looks like atenolol is the recommended medication to start. Uh, it was stating that you can give anywhere between 25 to 50 milligrams daily, kind of like as a starting dose for these patients. And it could be up titrated as needed. Obviously, that's not something that we would do in the ER because hopefully we won't see them again. But when they do follow up in the office, if their symptoms haven't improved, they're still feeling tacky, they still feel uncomfortable, then their endocrinologist or primary doctor can then go up on their dose. And then Miguel, when are you getting follow-up? Uh, we talked about if you have an endocrinologist on call, you can call them, but not everybody has that situation. Can you start the patient on that beta blocker and then they follow up in two weeks? Should they follow up later that week? How soon does that follow-up need to be arranged? So with our patient that we had in our ER, we started the patient on a tenolol. We gave them a dose in the ER. And then what we did is we reached out to an endocrinologist and saw like how quickly they could see them in the office. Luckily, they said that they could follow up with them in one week in the office, which I thought was appropriate. It kind of depends on what circumstance the patient has. I would say if the patient can follow up in the doctor's office within one week, that's a reasonable amount of time for them to follow up. I think that's reasonable when you're talking about something that is a potentially high-risk complaint, a high-risk diagnosis, getting that one-week follow-up. And the more able the patient is to get that quick follow-up, the more almost relaxed you can be with sending them out because you know that they're going to have that in their system. If they can't get a quick follow-up, then you really do need to work on arranging that and making sure it's there. And if it is going to be a little bit more delayed, you might even want to just tell them, hey, listen, I got you an appointment in two weeks. Why don't you come back here in a week? Let's just take a look, make sure you're doing okay, make sure there haven't been any problems with the new medication. Because I, I think sometimes we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be used as a primary care clinic. Sometimes we have to. When the patients can't get that rapid follow-up, I think it's not unreasonable to just say, come back here, we'll check you out, make sure you're okay. 
Miguel, before we close up the podcast, though, let's do some big take-home points. The take-home points that I have for our episode are four. Number one, hypothyroidism can present along a spectrum from the almost completely fine, like our patient, to those that are really, really sick and need immediate care and treatment. Point number two, if there are a lot of like interconnecting systems, consider ordering a TSH, T3, and T4. It's prudent, it's pretty cheap, and you can get it back pretty quickly, and it could give you a definitive diagnosis. Number three, once you've diagnosed hypothyroidism, don't anchor on it. Look for what might have caused it, especially in those with comorbidities. And lastly, if a patient is stable and reliable, you can discharge them home with a tenolol. Make sure that the patient follows up with their PCP or an endocrinologist. If, however, you feel uncomfortable doing that or the patient needs more social support, call your endocrinologist and have them give you some recommendations as to what to do. Fantastic. That's all for the Rebel Core Content Podcast this week. We'll be back in another two weeks with another cast. If you want to check out more from Rebel EM, hop on over to the site at rebelem.com for all our posts from our amazing team. Also, the Rebellion and EM conference is going to be back again in San Antonio from June 5th to the 7th. We have a fantastic lineup with Dr. Jillian Schmitz giving the keynote. We have Tarlin Hadiety, David Carr, Hillary Fairbrother, Ashley Liebig, Jamie Hope, Rob Bryant, Andy Little, Haney Malamut, Zaf Kassim, George Willis, Scott Wieters, Mizaho Morrison, and so many more. Go to rebellionandem.com to check out more on the conference, and we hope to see you there.